Section 7 of Around the World on a Bicycle, Volume 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by William Tomko. Around the World on a Bicycle, Volume 2 by Thomas Stevens, Chapter 4, Part 1, Through Khorasan. Shahrud is at the exit from the mountains of the caravan route from Asterabad, Mazandaran, and the Caspian coast. The mountains overlooking it are bare and rocky. A good trade seems to be done by several firms of Russian Armenians in exporting wool, cotton, and pelts to Russia, and handling Russian iron and petroleum. But for the iniquitous method of taxation, which consists really of looting the producing classes of all they can stand, the volume of trade here might easily be tenfold what it is. Shahrud is, or rather was, one of the four stations of terror. Mijamid, Miandasht, and Albasabad being the other three, so called on account of their exposed position and consequent frequency of Turkoman attacks. Even nowadays, they have their little ripples of excitement. Rumors of Turkoman raids are heard in the bazaars, and news was brought in and telegraphed to Tehran a week ago that 15,000 sheep had been carried off from a district north of the mountains. Word comes back that a regiment of soldiers is on its way to chastise the Turkomans and recover the property. What really will happen will be a horde of soldiers staying there long enough to devour what few sheep the poor people have left, and then returning without having seen, much less chastised, a Turkoman. The Persian government will notify the Russian minister of the misdoings of the Turkomans, and ask to have them punished, and the sheep restored. The Russian minister will reply that these particular Turkomans were Persian subjects, and nothing further will be done. Mr. McIntyre is a canny Scot, a royal engineer, and weighs fully three hundred pounds, but with this avoirdupois he is far from being inactive, and together we ramble up the Asterabad Pass to take a look at the Boston Valley on the other side. The valley isn't much to look at. No verdure, only a brown, barren plain surrounded on all sides by equally brown, barren mountains. In the evening, the prince sends round a pheasant, and shortly after calls himself, and partakes of tea and cigarettes. I accept Mr. McIntyre's invitation to remain and rest up, but only for another day, my experience being that, when on the road, one or two days' rest is preferable to a longer period. One gets rested without getting out of condition. We take a stroll through the bazaar in the morning, and call in at the wine-shop of a Russian-Armenian trader named Makerditch, who keeps Arak and native wine, and samples some of the latter. In his shop is a badly-stuffed Mazanderai tiger, and the walls of the private sitting-room are decorated with rude, old-fashioned prints of saints and scriptural scenes. It is now the Persian New Year, and bright new garments and snowy turbans impart a gay appearance to the throngs in the bazaar, for everybody changed his wardrobe from tip to toe on Idi Nurus, evening before New Year's Day, although the great unwashed of Persian society change never a garment for the next twelve months. 
considering that the average lower-class persian puts in a good share of this twelve months in the non-profitable process of scratching himself one would think it must be an immense relief for him to cast away these old habiliments with all their horrid load of filth and vermin and don a clean new outfit but the new ones soon get as thickly tenanted as the old and many even put the new garments on over certain of the old ones caring nothing for comfort and cleanliness and everything for appearance the persian new year's holiday lasts thirteen days and on the evening of the thirteenth day everybody goes out into the fields and plucks flowers and grasses to present to his or her friends governors of provinces who retain their position in consequence of having sent satisfactory tribute to the shah and ruled with at least a semblance of justice get presents of new robes on new year's day and those who have been unfortunate enough to lose the royal favor get removed new year's day brings either sorrow or rejoicing to every persian official's house the morning of my departure opens bright and warm after a thunderstorm the previous evening and mr mcintyre accompanies me to the outskirts of the city to put me on the right road to mijamid my objective point for the day eleven farsaks distant the streets are of course muddy and unridable and ere the suburbs are overcome a messenger overtakes us from the prince begging me to return and drink tea with him before starting tell the prince the sahib sends salams but cannot spare the time to return replies my companion who knows persian thoroughly you must come says the messenger for the khan of bostam has arrived to pay the new year's salam to the prince and the prince wants you to show him the bicycle must come tell the prince that when the sahib gets fairly started as he is now with his bicycle he wouldn't turn back for the shah himself the messenger looks glum and crestfallen as though very reluctant to return with such a message a message that probably sounds to him strangely disrespectful if not positively treasonable but he sees the uselessness of bandying words and so turns about feeling and looking very foolish for he addressed us very boldly and confidently before the whole crowd when he overtook us a few small streams have to be crossed on leaving Sharud for the cast blended rivulets of clear cold water in which there ought to be trout after these streams the road launches at once onto a level camel-thorn plain the gravel surface of which provides excellent wheeling an outlying village and caravanserai is passed through at a couple of farsakhs where as might be expected in the district of terror are hundreds of the little towers of refuge the village would be in a very exposed position and it looks as though it is but just now being rebuilt and repopulated after a period of ruin and desertion beyond this village the towers of refuge and other signs of human occupation disappear the uncultivated desert reigns supreme on either hand but the wheeling continues fairly good although a strong headwind somewhat impedes my progress beyond the level plain and the lower hills to the north are the snowy heights of the elbers range a less ambitious range of mountains forms a barrier some twenty miles to the south and in the distant southeast there looms up a dark massive pile that recalls at a glance memories of elk mountain wyoming 
though upon a closer inspection there is no doubt but that the densely wooded slopes of our old acquaintance of the Rockies would be found wanting. Twenty miles of this level plain is traversed, and I find myself gazing curiously at a range of mica-flecked hills off to the right. These hills present a very curious appearance. The myriads of flakes of mica scattered all about glitter and glint in the bright sunlight as if they might be diamonds and it requires but an easy effort of the imagination to fancy oneself in some strange, rich land of the gorgeous East, where precious jewels are scattered about like stones. These mica-spangled hills bear about the same relation to what one's imagination might conceive them to be as the gorgeous East, as it actually exists, does to the gorgeous East we read of in fairy tales beyond the mica hills i passed through a stretch of abandoned cultivation where formerly existed fields and ditches the villages with an abundance of portable property tempted turkoman raiders to guide their matchless chargers hither but small outlying settlements hereabout were precarious places to live in and the persistent damons generally caused them to be abandoned entirely from time to time the road has averaged good today, and Mijamid is reached at four o'clock. Seeking the shelter of the Chaparkana, that devoted building is soon surrounded by a new-dressed, and accordingly a good-natured and vociferous crowd shouting, So are shuck! So are shuck! Tomasha! Tomasha! As I survey the grinning, shouting multitude from my retreat on the roof, and note the number of widely open mouths, the old wicked thoughts about hot potatoes and dexterity in throwing them persist in coming to the fore. Several scrimmages and quarrels occur between the Chaparji and his shagirds, and the crowd, who persist in invading the premises and the tumult around, is something deafening for it is holiday times and the people feel particularly self-indulgent and disinclined for self-denial in the midst of the uproar from out the chaotic mass of rainbow-colored costumes there forms a little knot of molas in huge snowy turbans and flowing gowns of solid blue or green and at their head the gray-bearded patriarchal-looking old khan of the village in his flowered robe of office from the governor these gay-looking but comparatively sober-sided representatives of the village endeavor to have the crowd cease their clamorous importunities, an attempt, however, that results in signal failure, and they constitute themselves a delegation to approach me in a respectful and decorous manner and ask me to ride for the satisfaction of themselves and the people. The profound salams and good taste of these eminently respectable personages are not to be resisted, and after satisfying them, the Khan promises to provide me with supper, which at a later hour turns up in the form of the inevitable dish of pilau. Two miles on the road next morning, and it begins raining. At five miles it develops into a regular downpour that speedily wets me through. A small walled village is finally reached, and shelter obtained beneath its ample portals, a place that seems to likewise be the loafing place of the village. The entrance is a good-sized room, and here on wet days the men can squat about and smoke, and at the same time see everything that passes on the road. The village is defended by a strong mud wall some thirty feet high, and strengthened with abutting towers at frequent intervals 
The only entrance is one massive door, and inside there is plenty of room for all the four-footed possessions of the people. The houses are the usual little mud huts with thatched beehive roofs built against the wall. The flocks of goats and sheep are admitted inside every evening, and taken out again to graze in the morning. The appearance of the interior is that of a very filthy, undrained, and utterly neglected farmyard, and as no breath of wind ever passes through it, or comes any nearer the ground than the top of the thirty-foot wall, living in its reeking, pent-up exhalations must be something abominable. Such a place as this in Persia would be fairly swarming with noxious insect life, of which fleas would be the most tolerable variety, and two-thirds of the people would be suffering from chronic ophthalmia. This little village, doubtless, had enough to do a few years ago to maintain its existence, even with its remarkably strong walls, and on the highest mountain peaks round about they point out to me their watch-towers, where sentinels daily scanned the country round for the wild horsemen they so much dreaded. Four men and three women among the little crowd gathered about me here are pointed out as having been released from the slavery by the Russians when they captured Kiva and liberated the Persian slaves and sent them home. Every village and hamlet along this part of the country contains its quota of returned captives who, no doubt, entertain lively recollections of being carried off and sold. Soon after my arrival here, a little weazen-faced old Seyud, in a threadbare and badly faded green gown, comes hobbling through the rain and the mahogany-colored slush of the village yard to the gate. Everybody rises respectfully as he comes in, and the old fellow, accustomed to having this deference paid him by everybody about him, and wishing to show courtesy to a Ferengi, motions for me to keep seated. Seeing that I had no intention of rising, this courtesy was somewhat superfluous, but the incident serves to show how greatly the simple villagers are impressed with the idea of a Seyud's superiority, to say nothing of the Seyud's assumption of the same. They explain to me that the little unwashed, unkempt, and well-nigh unclad specimen of humanity examining the bicycle is a Seyud, with the manner of people pointing out a being of unapproachable superiority. Still, looking at the poor old fellow's rags, and remembering that it is New Year and the time for a change of raiment, one cannot help thinking, Old fellow, you evidently come in for more respect, after all, than material assistance, and would, no doubt, willingly exchange a good deal of the former for a little of the latter. Still, one must not be too confident of this. The bodily requirements of a wrinkled old Seyud would be very trifling, while his egotism would, on the other hand, be insufferable. This is a grazing village chiefly, and the gravelly desert comes close up to the walls, so that there is no difficulty about pushing on immediately after it ceases raining. Two foresacks of variable wheeling through a belt of low hills and broken country, and two more over the level Mindasht plain, and the caravanserai of Mindasht is reached. Here the village, the telegraph office, and everything is enclosed within the protecting walls of an immense Shah Abbas caravanserai, a building capable of affording shelter and protection to five thousand people. In the old, and yet not so very old, dangerous days, it was necessary, 
for safety, that travelers and pilgrims should journey together through this section of country in large caravans. Otherwise, disaster was sure to overtake them. And Shah Abbas, the Great, built these huge caravanserais for their accommodation. In deference to the memory of this monarch as a builder of caravanserais all over the country, any large serai is nowadays called a Shah Abbas caravanserai whether built by him or not. Certainly, not less than 300 pack camels, besides other animals, are resting and feeding, or being loaded up for the night march as I ride up, their myriad clanging bells making a din that comes floating across the plain to meet me as I approach. Miandasht is the first place in Khorasan proper, and among the motley gathering of Sharmdars, camel drivers, pilgrims, travelers, villagers and hangers-on about the serai are many Khorasanis wearing huge sheepskin busbies, similar to the headgear of the Romanians and Tabriz Turks of Ovayik and the Perso-Turkish border. Most of these busbies are black or brown, but some affect a mixture of black and white, a piebald affair that looks very striking and peculiar. The telegraph G here runs out to be a person of immense importance in his own estimation, and he has evidently succeeded in impressing the same belief upon the unsophisticated minds of the villagers, who, apparently, have come to regard him as little less than monarch of all he surveys. True, there isn't much to survey at Miaudasht, everything there being within the caravanserai walls, but whenever the telegraph G emerges from the seclusion of his little office it is to blossom forth upon the theatre of the crowd's admiring glances in the fanciful habiliments of a la-di-da persian swell very punctilious as regards etiquette instead of coming forth in a spontaneous manner to see who i am and look at the bicycle he pays me a ceremonious visit at the shapar khana half an hour later in this visit he is preceded by his farash, and he walks with a magnificent peacock strut that causes the skirts of his faultless roundabout to flop up and down, up and down in rhythmic accompaniment to his steps. Apart from his insufferable conceit, however, he tries to make himself as agreeable as possible, and after tea and cigarettes I give him and the people a tomasha, at the conclusion of which he asks permission to send in my supper. The room in which I spend the evening is a small, dome-roofed apartment in which a circular opening in the apex of the dome is expected to fill the triple office of admitting light, ventilation, and carrying off smoke from the fire, the natural consequence being that the room is dark, unventilated, and full of smoke. Now and then some determined sightseer on the roof fills this hole up, completely with his head in an effort to peer down through the smoke and obtain a glimpse of myself or the bicycle, or a mischievous youngster, unable to resist the temptation, drops down a stone. The Shagird Chapar here is a man who has been to Askabad and seen the railroad, and when the inevitable question of Russian versus English marifet mechanical skill, comes up, he endeavors to impress upon the open-mouthed listeners the marvelous character of the locomotive. It is a wonderful Ateshgari fire-wagon, he would say, and runs on an Awan-Ra iron road. 
the Sharvadar puts in Atesh and Ob. It goes choo 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 spits fire and smoke, pulls a long Kylie long caravan of forgans with it, and goes ten farsakhs an hour. But in order to thoroughly appreciate this travelled and highly enlightened person's narrative, one must have been present in the smoke-permeated room, and by the nickering light of a camel-thorn fire have watched the gesticulations of the speaker and the rapt attention of the listeners. Must have heard the exclamations of, Mashallah! escape honestly and involuntarily from the parted lips of wonder-stricken auditors as they endeavor to comprehend how such things could possibly be and yet there is no doubt that five minutes afterward the verdict of each listener to himself was that the shagird shapar in describing to them the locomotive was lying like a pirate or a persian and, after all, they couldn't conceive of anything more wonderful than the bicycle, and the ability to ride it, and this they had seen with their own eyes. It is the change of the moon, and a most wild-looking evening. The sun sets with a fiery forge glowing about it, and fringing with an angry border the banks of darksome clouds that mingle their weird shapes with the mountain masses to the west. The wind sighs and moans through the archways and menzils of the huge caravanserai, breathing of rain and unsettled weather. These warning signals are not far in advance, for a drenching rain soaks and saturates everything during the night, converting the parallel trails of the pilgrim road into twenty narrow, silvery streaks that glisten like trails of glass ahead, as I wheel among them to meet the newly risen sun. It is a morning of hurrying, scudding clouds, and fitful sunshine, but fresh and bracing after the rain. A country of broken hills and undulating road is reached in an hour. The broken hills are covered with blossoming shrubs and green young camel-thorn, in which birds are cheerily piping. End of section 7. Recording by William Tomko.